Hey everyone, this is Vegan Theology, episode 17, and I'm Kevin, and I'm here with my wonderful wife, Sarah. Hi Kevin, how hey. are you? Good, how are you? And hello listeners. We definitely love our listeners, and we're so thankful that you guys take the time to listen. There's a lot of great podcasts and other things vying for your time and attention, so Thank you so much right. for making us a part of your life, and we hope that you're enjoying this as much as we are, because we sure are. We are. We are definitely benefiting and growing at each and every episode. We're, yeah. We're learning a lot. A lot of good, a lot of good material out there. So. So welcome. Yeah. yeah. We're back, baby. Are we? <laughs> All right. <laughs> and we're making our way quite swimmingly through... Andrew Lindsay's Animal Theology. Yeah. Uh, we have reached chapter seven, and I just realized after this chapter, we have two remaining chapters to discuss. Mm. So, yeah, I feel a sense of accomplishment coming on. Yeah. It's good stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's, and I think he's definitely helped us in our thinking. I know a lot of what he says, even in this chapter, resonates with a lot of the ideas that we've already put out there in past podcast episodes. But I think what you were saying is that one of the things that he does is he always brings it back to Christology. Mm -hmm. And that's maybe one of the strengths of this book. Oh my goodness. Yes. That's good. So far that is my far and away biggest takeaway is how he has taken me deeper and into more of a rich embrace of the ramifications, the consequences of the incarnation, the self-sacrificing God, and and the consequences of that for us. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, I don't know, the word juicy <laughs> keeps coming. If that's the juice is it? of this book <laughs> is a fuller Christology. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. This chapter is chapter seven. Uh, hunting as the anti-gospel of predation. Wow. So we're going to get into hunting. He's get Lindsay's thoughts on the sport of hunting, the so-called sport. Yeah, so-called. Quote, unquote, sport right. of hunting and how it is the anti-gospel. It is the gospel of predation, which is antithetical to the gospel. And I think... I mean, that really sums up the main gist of this chapter. Right. No, exactly. We are called to be co-creators with God. We bear God's image, which means we are viceroys and representatives of God. We talked about using the phrase property managers of God on this earth, and that includes new creation. We're also called to be progenitors of the new creation hmm. now and hunting killing sentient beings is not exactly part of that plan right it doesn't make logical sense i think th that it continues to occur to me even those of us who have been raised and steeped in gospel right how quickly and easily it's kind of a slippery concept when you're swimming in the waters of a fallen world, right? Mm. And we, without even noticing, we adopt 
these natural laws and this natural philosophy that what you see is the way it's supposed to be and this is just the way the world is. And we forget that, no, we need to be rebelliously fighting against the way the world is. And this reminds me of a quote that I saw this week on the account um, called Prophetic Imagination. Kevin and I both really love following that account on Instagram. And the quote was, the weirdest thing about Christianity is that people can take a God who willingly dies rather than return violence for violence and use that God to justify violence. Loving our neighbor, taking care of the poor, advocating for the orphan and the widow, seeking liberation for captives, setting the imprisoned free, and declaring the year of the Lord's favor is somehow contrary to the God many Christians believe in. How willing we were to give up on love to worship the God of our stomach. Mm. Which is an interesting way to close that quote. It just reminds me that the gospel is so, what's the, what's the word? It's like um, deceptively simple that basically it really is about compassion, love, forgiveness. Self-sacrifice. Yes. Community, reconciliation, nonviolence. And for some reason, that's such a hard thing for us to really continue to hang on to. Right. And I think, you know, we brought it up. He brings it up again in this chapter is this sense of, I think it was a chapter two ago that we kind of accept, oh, this is the way things are. And we kind of adopt this world's way of doing things and like, oh, well. And I think, again, it plays into everything we've been saying that many Christians just accept this this is the way things are and we're going to die and go to heaven and God's going to rescue us and clean it all up. Like that there's nothing we can do now to fix this messy, ugly world. Even more problematic is that we're able to say that things like hunting, for example, are actually God's will. Right. We put this spiritual justification on this fallen culture of death and violence and somehow say that, oh, this is this somehow reflects God's good will. Right. This is what God intended. And of course, we live in a big hunting state. Probably most states are. But yeah, we know many church-going folks who are hunters. And even what we've talked about in the past about hunting, like hunting organizations use the term conservation. Like mm-hmm. we're doing a good thing. By a necessary... An, yeah, a necessary thing. We're culling the deer population or culling the elk population Mm -hmm. or whatever. And in fact, I think nature honestly can take care of itself. Well, yeah. And I mean, we can definitely riff on hunting maybe (laughs) after we discuss Lindsay a little more thoroughly, but just since you brought that up, right, that idea that we need to, to manage the population of wildlife has everything to do with the grip that animal agriculture has on us. Exactly. Because we have to protect animal agriculture at all costs. Right. And carnivorous wildlife 
is obviously a problem when we're trying to protect our livestock. Right. And but even the herbivorous uh, wildlife is a competitor for food for grazing, and so that's what ranchers are all, all about: is getting rid of all the wildlife around. Right, you know, and so. of course we push into the wildlife habitat anyway. Yeah. Yeah, we could we could go on and on. We could. All right, let's let's dive into this chapter. I'm going to read from his first paragraph just to kind of set the stage. Far from being innocent or morally neutral, I argue that hunting represents the anti-gospel of Jesus, our predator. So this is a he always uses yeah. very evocative well, language. It reminds me of Flannery O'Connor. <laughs> yeah. Like that's something that Flannery O'Connor would like say. This, uh, this anti-gospel of Jesus, our predator. Few, I think, have really grasped what it means theologically to justify the destruction of sentient life simply for the sport involved in it. Only if parasitical nature is to be celebrated as divinely purposed existence can hunting for amusement be justified? Whatever the difficulties in conceiving of a world without predation, to intensify and heighten without any ethical necessity the parasitical forces in our world is to plunge creation further into that darkness from which the Christian hope is that we shall all, human and animal, be liberated. I mean, that is a ton packed into just a few oh, yeah. sentences. Yeah. So basically, if, you, if we kind of go back into that quote, the only way to justify the destruction of sentient life and then call it sport, right, is that if we, if we basically adopt the idea that parasitical nature is divinely purposed and we have to celebrate parasitical nature, Right. And he's saying, however difficult it is for us to even conceive of a different kind of world without predation, basically, when we adopt the mainstream thinking on this, that this is just the way things are and this is a natural thing and this is even God's will, we are actually, instead of doing our job, we are actually plunging this world further into darkness. Right. The opposite of what we're supposed to be doing, really. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's like we're going in reverse. He goes now into an anecdote that he takes from, he calls it an unusual book, entitled The Christian Hunter's Survival Guide. So he, <laughs> he takes us into something that I think doesn't sound that far off from kind of what the churches we've been raised in, the families we've been raised in, right. uh, this sport, this Christian sportsman mindset. So this book, The Christian Hunter's Survival Guide, was published as one of a series of, quote, power books. The author is himself a clergyman, Pastor William H. Ammon. And Pastor Ammon resides in Pennsylvania and is executive director of an organization called Sportsman for Christ. And you come from Pennsylvania. I do. You were raised in Western, Pennsylvania. Western Pennsylvania. You were raised in a hunting community. Yeah, very much. I was raised in a hunting yep. family. <laughs> so yeah, this author, William Ammon, Pastor Ammon, goes through basically how he theologically, 
spiritually justifies being a good hunter. And, you know, so he distinguishes him, himself from what he calls the slob hunters. Right. And I wonder if, like, I was thinking about that, that word. He calls them slob hunters, and there are people that don't follow the gaming laws. I just wonder if it's obviously the worst case would be a poacher. We're familiar with that term, poaching. Yeah. This is what I'd like to bring out on this point, which is I think every hunter out there, or pretty near every hunter out there, considers themselves the right kind of hunter. Right. And loves to talk about, well, I'm not like these other hunters. I can remember vividly being out hunting with my father as a junior high student, and it was opening day of the season. We were on a mountainside on one side of a valley, and we could hear just bang, 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 <laughs> going on on the mountain facing us. And my dad was like, oh, opening day idiots, you know, like mm. these people who just come out and just shoot at anything that moves, and it's so unsafe, and right. just wanton killing. But we're not like that. Like We do it the right way. So this justification, this way of making it seem like we're better than or we're doing it the right way, the way God intended kind of thing, I think that's probably how pretty much every hunter feels. Right. I was going to say, too, it just occurred to me, like, is this true for you? Like, where I grew up in western Pennsylvania, like, the first day of hunting season, the first day of buck season was, like, a day off of school. Like, there was no school because everybody was out hunting. Kind of, I just thought of that as you were saying that. Is that how it was here in Montana? So... Growing up in Missoula, Montana, which is kind of more of the hippie town of, so a little bit less um, hardcore hunting community. Okay. That so no, we definitely had school scheduled. Oh, interesting. On the first day of hunting season, but yeah, you've told me that before. Yeah, because they knew everybody wasn't coming to school, so they said, <laughs> "All right, well, take a day off of school." <laughs> and then in New Hampshire, it was a, a few days off for skiing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like so many hunters. Christian hunters, Christian sportsmen. I'm smiling because there's even like sportsmen churches. But that's the name of the churches, the different communities around Montana. I've always wondered what it's like to go there. And I always just wonder about like the women of those churches, you know, because this is a church for sportsmen. Yeah. So like so many Christian hunters, there's a lot of spiritual language put around the killing of animals. Ammon. He says, as a Christian, I see death as a glorious beginning, not an end. And there's always language like, I honor the animal as I kill the animal, you know, things like this. But Lindsay doesn't put up with that. No. (laughs) He says, seeing death as a glorious beginning has not prevented Christianity from opposing murder of humans. Right. You know, like, let's just take this to the logical conclusion. Like, if we really think that death is a, a liberating us from bondage and setting us into a new existence, perfect existence of some kind, then why don't we just advocate it across the board? Right. For all of creation. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. He says, how are we to, re- this is Lindsay, how are we to reconcile the recognition and the celebration of this God-given sentient life with its summary destruction? Yeah, this idea that we can honor animals by taking their life or we can worship and celebrate this God-given life by killing it, by destroying the life. 
if you just stop and look at that, how twisted that is, that we've accepted that, we've been enculturated into thinking that way. Right. And then Lindsay does something very interesting. He goes into a section of the chapter that he is calling Jesus our predator. So, yeah, yeah you're right. It does remind me of Flannery O'Connor yeah. because it's like it's like using this kind of offensive, shocking language or concept to make a point. Right. To make a very good point. Again, Lindsay challenges this culture that we find ourselves in. He says, for if it was really true that predation is God's will, it would have to follow for Christians that the life of Jesus, what after all is the self-disclosure of God, manifested and vindicated this predator-slash-prey relationship. So again, if, if predation and parasitical nature is God's will, then Jesus would have vindicated that paradigm. Right. Such a gospel would be substantially different from the one we currently have. Jesus would not just be eating some fishes, but feasting on calves and lambs. Jesus, according to the predator gospel, would be the butcher par excellence. He would be the one who, far from desisting from animal sacrifice, actually encouraged his disciples to excel in it. Instead of driving out the sacrificial animals from the temple, a point that I'm always wondering why we don't emphasize that. That's right. the first thing he did when he showed up in Jerusalem is set the sacrificial animals free. Right. Instead of driving out the sacrificial animals from the temple, the Jesus of the predator gospel would drive them in. The line that most characterizes his ministry would not be, quote, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, but rather the good shepherd slaughters with gratitude as many sheep as he can. Far from beginning his ministry, according to Mark 1.13, with the wild beasts, so that's when he went out into the desert um, to fast and pray for 40 days, and Mark says, and he was with the wild animals, mm -hmm. which is kind of an Adamic uh, Eden kind of image. Mm -hmm. Far from beginning his ministry with the wild animals and thereby symbolizing reconciliation with nature, the predator Jesus would be, quote, with the wild beast with bow and arrow. Instead of commending the rescuing of a fallen animal from the pit, predator Jesus would point to the inevitability of God's far-reaching plan of death, disease, and decay. So that's interesting, right? Yeah, that is very interesting, isn't it? That's a whole different take on the gospel and the new creation and the kingdom of God and the future eschatological kingdom. He goes even further. He says, far from consorting with sinners or excusing prostitutes, the predator Jesus would be the first to cast the stone. Instead of healing the sick, the predator Jesus could only approve of the efficiency of God-given ecological systems. Instead of raising Lazarus from the dead, the predator Jesus could only comment that death is God's blessing. Instead of preaching the good news of the coming kingdom of God, the proclamation would run, quote, eat and be eaten. Hmm. Yeah, it's almost like with this in mind, this is what we love about Lindsay, is he's consistent and he's always pointing that out. But yeah, if, if we should be hunting, if that is 
sanctioned by God as part of God's will and God's intention, then yes, the logical conclusion would be that parasitical nature and predation are okay. And just like that, eat and get eaten. Yeah. It's survival of the fittest. Circle of life. Circle of life, exactly. The, the natural laws are the way God set it up. Right. And so we should just join in with predation and join in with, right. you know. Consum- it's everything we hate about our current system, capitalism, yeah. because it's very much that way. It's mm. very predatory. Yeah. And our culture in general is very predatory. I mean, that's why we're here. We're here to actually push back against this kind of stuff. Right. In every way, culturally, yeah. civically, in reality, mm-hmm. in physical nature, yeah. all of it. So Lindsay offers us the beautiful alternative, which once again, let's turn our eyes to Jesus, right? The next section of the chapter is the sacrifice for all. And he says, let's remember the point we're missing, right? We are missing the point that Jesus, the divinity, allowed himself willingly, voluntarily, allowed himself to be sacrificed, right? Again, going back to that quote, that prophetic imagination quote at the beginning of the show, Jesus shows us that we are to willingly sacrifice ourselves rather than return violence for violence, rather than perpetuate violence. The example is self-sacrifice. He says, we fail to comprehend the fundamentally most significant point of all, which is this. Humans are the species that can and sometimes should sacrifice themselves for God's cause, whereas precisely because they cannot choose to sacrifice themselves, the sacrifice of animals is always murder. I mean by murder here the involuntary, unsought death of any sentient creature. Wow, it's pretty potent. Yes. That is very potent. And everything you just said just reminds me, he has an amazing quote in here, I think. If you're following along, it's on page 122. It says, The hope for humanity is that one day they might indeed recognize that they are made in God's image and learn self-sacrifice. For the rest of the created world. I mean, wow. I mean, that's the mission right there. I mean, that's mm. that's pretty powerful. And I just love how he says that. Um, in some ways, it's indicting. Yeah. We grew up saying it's all about Jesus. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Yeah, 22. <laughs> From yeah. cover to cover, yep. it's all about Jesus. But Lindsay's showing us we haven't gone far enough. Because if we have a Christian understanding of what it means to be human, it's about self-giving love. Yeah, it's interesting, too. We were talking about this earlier, and I don't even know if this is worth saying, but it was kind of fun. You know, we keep running into the fact that so much of our theology is very anthropocentric. And, you know, we've stated there's a need, I think, to recalculate Christian theology I think some are. Lindsay is. David Clough is. Mm -hmm. Others are. But I was just thinking, though, just out of fun, calling calling these Christians anthrop. (laughs) You know, we have these anthropocentric Christians, and then there are these what what 
Lindsay might go by. I was going to say holistic Christians, but I think he called might might say steward Christians. Or ser- the servant, the servant Christians. Servant Christians. Yeah. So it's just interesting that there's just a whole, there's two different worlds. Yeah. Of Christians. And from this sacrifice for all that we see in Jesus, we go into the deliverance from bondage. That somehow when we, if we were all, if you could imagine the entire human race, the entire human species being of this mind of self-giving love, what it would do to creation, like what would the effects be on creation? It would be deliverance from bondage, right. which is exactly what Paul talks about when he says all creation is groaning for, basically for this, for the deliverance from bondage. Right, which is our mission. The biblical orientation is not to baptize the laws of the universe as the purposes of God, but rather to look to their transformation and fulfillment. Because our natural brains that are so enculturated in the waters we swim in, right, we're like, well, that's just not the way the world works. Exactly, precisely the point. We are fighting against the order of this world. He says, For those who regard this possibility as rather improbable, I advocate some reflection upon the methods frequently employed in some forms of hunting. In fox, otter, mink, and deer hunting, beagling, hair coursing, bear and badger baiting, cockfighting, and even some forms of shooting with dogs, quote, sportsmen devote themselves to intensifying any natural antipathy between one species and another. Hounds are taught how to chase and kill with consummate ruthlessness, or else they themselves are punished or killed. Cocks are drugged and given artificial spurs in order that they might fight with greater wounding power. Terrier dogs are trained to terrorize and mutilate other animal species. In these and other ways, humans do not simply imitate, as some hunters claim, the fallen order of creation. On the contrary, in these examples, humans concentrate, heighten, and intensify whatever violent propensities there may be in animals to their quintessential point of refined and maximum cruelty. Hunters do not imitate the cruelties of nature. They create them. It's just so true. Like we We want to believe, hunters, I should say, want to believe that they are fitting within nature. They are managing nature. They are just the apex predator of many predators. And this is all just the natural way. Hunting is so unnatural. Hunting as we know it today is not natural. We have taken it and just made it as... (laughs) evil and magnified the evilness of it right and yet and yet people are thanking god for his bounty for providing mm. some animal yeah. to to nourish their bodies and you know feed their families and yeah it is interesting that in fact hunting is actually escalating evil in this world and it's maybe the most apparent example of enculturation, of passing the curse down from generation to generation. Because when you're a child, 
and most children and most families adore their father and want nothing more than the approval of their father. And when you're a child and your father is an avid hunter or fisherman, you're enculturated into that. You can see that your dad looks forward to hunting season and looks forward to fishing more than probably anything else in his life. Like he gets excited, right? Right. And he says things to you like, you know, someday, son or daughter, when you're old enough, I'm going to take you hunting with me, right? You're going to have your own gun and you're going to get your own deer or, you know, whatever. And when it finally happens, they experience, you know, basking in the sunlight of their father's smile and the pride their father has in them. And they take pictures and they frame the pictures and put them up on the wall and they brag about it to the rest of the family and to friends. Like, children are incapable, like, literally incapable of thinking their parent is wrong about something. Mm. <laughs> That's why children are so apt to blame themselves. There must be something wrong with me and my perceptions. It can't be my father that's wrong about something. And so they really don't have a choice but to divorce themselves from their own conscience because, as we've said, I think, in this show, all children are born vegans. All children are compassionate to animals. All children love animals and, and would be so upset and traumatized to see an animal will be killed or hurt. But this forces children to divorce themselves from their own conscience and accept, adopt this culture of going out and just killing defenseless, innocent animals who mm -hmm. are just trying to live. Yeah, you know, and it made me think, too, how many hunters we know that have these trophies in their house and in their garages and even on their porches. <laughs> I was a delivery driver, and I remember walking up, and there, was, there were these elk antlers, and I was always concerned, and they were kind of lower. They were kind of at my head level. Like they were mounted on the wall. Yeah, they were mounted on the wall outside on someone's porch. Mm -hmm. And I was always concerned of stepping on the porch, hitting some ice, and like my eye socket. <laughs> impaling. <laughs> impaling your... <laughs> myself into this uh, elk antler. So mm -hmm. those are the kind of ideas that I'm having now about these trophies. They're almost a macabre yeah. kind of sense that what are we doing? Yeah. You know what I mean? With these animal heads on walls and in garages and on porches I don't know. Right, exactly. I feel like if, if we embrace that the gospel is about life, whatever is life-affirming, life-giving, life-celebrating, the gospel is the opposite of celebrating death and causing death, right? Yeah, when you really embrace that, I don't know how you can... You know, that reminds me, another thing you see around town is they actually take the vertebrae of their prey, the various vertebrae, and they have them laced onto their car antenna. Oh, yeah. Have you seen that? Yeah, I have. It's like, we're, yeah, we're celebrating a dead body. We're decorating our car now with somebody's dead body. Yeah, it's strange. You know, it, like, when you really think about it, I know it's, like, accepted. And like you said, we, we, we always talk about the power of culture, the enculturation of this culture here, the hunting culture. Mm -hmm. But it is, if you take a step back and really think about it, it is really, mm -hmm. I want to say something out of a uh, Cormac McCarthy novel <laughs> or something, you know what I mean? The Road or Blood Meridian or something. I mean. So as Christians, we 
all agree that God is an amazing creator and creation and nature is majestic and wonderful and healing. And how sad is it that many, not everybody, but many people, it's a direct line, it's a direct correlation. If I'm going to go out and enjoy nature, that equals, so enjoying nature, being out in nature equals killing animals. Right. Can you go out and just enjoy nature without harming anybody, right. you know, without harming an animal? It also, another conversation I was having just this week with my mom, because we were talking about some local politicians, some state politicians, and, you know, it's starting to be that season where you're receiving things in the mail from them. And I was like, isn't it kind of tragic that it would be political suicide in this state for a politician to not have an ad of them out with their rifle, you know, a shot mm. of them with their shotgun. And, uh, you know, I'm pro Second Amendment. Don't worry, everybody. I'm going to protect your rights as a hunter. And right. as far as, that's all anybody cares about. And that's what so many of the ads are. That, right. that no matter what, as a politician, you're trying to do in this state to make life better for the citizens of this state, you have to focus on firearms and hunting and like that's the most important thing yeah you know? yeah it's unfortunate so well it was a shorter chapter and a very interesting one and again i think it incorporates a lot of the things that we've been talking about he talks about the future state of the world the new creation how we are image bearers how we are meant to be co-creators with god and propagate and push the new creation. Not follow to, the example of Jesus, which was not a predator example. Right, self-sacrifice. So, mm. a lot of good stuff in here. Yeah. And uh, really appreciate you listening. Definitely. Thank you so much and have a wonderful day. Yep, take care. Bye.